This is our second of four weekends focusing on the general theme, God works the night shift. And the night shift refers to those unavoidable dark days that we will all experience in life. And they can be brought on by a health crisis or the aging process or sometimes a physical move or a job loss or a miscarriage or a personal failure or a significant broken relationship, maybe a rebellious child. The 16th century church leader uh, by the name of St. John of the Cross called such hard life passages dark nights of the soul. But listen, if we're convinced, if we're convinced that our Heavenly Father is working in ways that will ultimately bless us, and as we'll learn this morning, bless others through us, we'll be more likely to thrive and not just survive through such dark seasons. Roy Angel was a pastor with a millionaire brother. It was back in the oil boom days of the late 1940s, and Roy's brother happened to own the right piece of Texas prairie at the right time. He sold it, became wealthy overnight, and he began investing strategically in the stock market, eventually moved to a penthouse of a plush apartment building in New York City and managed his business from a lavish Wall Street office. Well, a week before Christmas one year, the well-to-do businessman visited his preacher brother in Chicago and presented him with a new car, a gleaming, top-of-the-line Packard. Anybody in here remember what a Packard is? <laughs> a few and others who are ashamed to admit it. But Roy kept this car in a parking garage where it would be protected. Well, one morning when he came down to get the car, he saw a young ragamuffin ghetto boy with his face pressed up against the glass of the car window. He wasn't doing anything suspicious. He was just looking into the new car's interior with wide, admiring eyes. Hello, son, Roy said. The boy turned around. Is this your car, mister? He asked. Yes. Yes, it is. He said, how much did it cost? Well, Roy said, I really don't know how much it cost. The boy said, you mean you own this car and you don't know how much it costs? No, I don't, he said. I, it's because my brother gave it to me as a Christmas present. Well, at this, the boy's eyes grew even wider, and he paused for a moment, and then he said quietly, I wish... I wish, and Roy thought he knew how the boy would finish that sentence. He thought he was going to say, I wish I had a brother like that. That's not what he said. He said, I wish, I wish I could be a brother like that. But when I read that story, I, I wasn't as moved by the wealthy brother's generosity. He probably could have purchased his brother a fleet of luxury cars without feeling pinched. I found myself moved by the heart of a young boy from the slums. Why did he dream of prosperity? So he could lavish it on his sibling. More than having the car for himself, he relished the opportunity to give it to someone else. Now, there's a principle revealed in this little story that is thoroughly biblical. 
It's the principle of being blessed for the purpose of being a blessing to others. So why does God fill our lives with good things anyway? Is it so we can go out to the warehouse and count the boxes? Or is it so we can get the, behind the wheel of a forklift and see how high we can stack the pallets of stored stuff? No. No, he wants us to concern ourselves with the outflow and leave the inflow to him. It's a principle that's represented in the words of Jesus in Luke 6, 38. Jesus said, give and you will receive your gift will return to you in full. Press down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured back into your lap. Now, Jesus' words here are most often applied in the context of stewardship, but the application is so much broader, and today I want us to see it in the realm of giving encouragement, giving comfort, giving strength, giving help to others. You see, we're often on the receiving end of God's encouragement and comfort and strength and help that gets us through the dark nights of the soul. And he does that so we can encourage and comfort and strengthen and help others to get through their dark nights of the soul. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a Christian brother like that. Look at this biblical passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and then verse 6. This is where we're going to be living for the next few minutes. Let us give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the merciful Father, the God from whom all help comes. He helps us in all our troubles so that we're able to help others who have all kinds of troubles using the same help that we ourselves have received from God. If we suffer, it is for your help and salvation. If we're helped, then you too are helped and given the strength to endure with patience the same sufferings that we also endure. I want to lift out of this passage two very important truths that are so simple. I'm almost ashamed to share them with you this morning, but they reveal how God works in the night shift. First of all, he gives his help to us. It's right there in the text. The Apostle Paul identifies God as our merciful Father, the God from whom all help comes. To be merciful means that he is attentive to us, he is compassionate, he is caring, he's willing to help, he's willing to serve us. We learned last week, he's watching over us. More than that, he also helps us, you see. Can you even take that in? He serves you and me. Think of Jesus at the feet of the disciples at the Last Supper, washing their feet. He's a father who will always come alongside us to offer hope when we're despairing, comfort when we are grieving, self-discipline when we're weak-willed, and courage when we're anxious. 
And listen, I know that what is revealed here about God, that he is merciful and he is the God from whom all help comes. The reason I know this is true is because of what Jesus said in John 14, 9. Whoever has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. Why then do you say, show us the Father? So if you want to know what God is like, you want to know the heart of God, you want to know the character of God. Just look at Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says, He, that is Jesus, is the visible likeness. Here it is. The visible likeness of the invisible God. Now, the words visible likeness, or some translations translate it image. He is the image of the invisible God. Some versions say he is the exact representation. Communicates the same idea. The Greek word literally means reflection. Now, when you look in a mirror, who looks back at you? Well, you do. That's, that's you in that mirror. Jesus is the mirror image. He is the exact representation. He's the reflection of the living God. A few years back, I went through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I tracked all the occasions when someone said to Jesus, have mercy on me. I wanted to see. If Jesus ever turned aside from anyone who pled for his attention, for his mercy, I could not find one place in the four Gospels where anyone ever said, have mercy on me, that Jesus was too busy, too preoccupied, too distracted to answer that prayer, to answer that cry. That is a prayer he will, he will always answer. If you say to him, have mercy on me, he'll do it. So the Bible testifies, and Jesus personifies the truth that we're children of a merciful Father who is the God from whom all help comes. That's why in crisis, we pray a lot around here. I want to talk to you fathers for a minute here this morning. Just as Jesus reveals the heart of the Heavenly Father, we dads have a responsibility to faithfully show our children the character of God. Maybe not perfectly, but at least consistently. And I know that sounds daunting, but it is nonetheless true. If we as fathers fail to demonstrate attentiveness to our children, compassion, mercy, helpfulness to our children, we're going to put them in a deficit position for life. The father wound is huge today huge in too many children so if a father is absent or if he's checked out or if he's off-putting if he's intimidating if he's manipulative if he's temperamental if he's secretive if he is verbally physically or sexually abusive his children his children will pay the price and they may not recover and spiritually they could be badly damaged because of the natural tendency of children to identify the character of their heavenly father with the character of their earthly father. And some can move beyond a thoughtless and insensitive father, but many are not able, and they are more often than not scarred. And listen, if you've been such a father in the past, and you've not apologized and sought the forgiveness of your adult children, I want to counsel you to do it. It's not too late. You will be glad. 
and it can be transformative in your relationship with your child. Start from where you are and move forward. Another thing, I remember uh, taking our children out on their 16th birthdays. That's when they could officially become eligible to date. I took them out for their 16th birthday. I presented them with a purity ring, and I talked with them individually about their future. And I asked each one of them to make a commitment to sexual purity. I talked to all of them about family values and church and personal worship and money management and peer pressure and drinking and drugs. I crammed as much into that evening as I possibly could. And a part of that conversation was a pledge I made to them that night as their father. I said, I promise you, as long as you honor the Lord in your life priorities and commitments, I will do everything in my power for as long as I live to make your life pleasant but if they did not honor the Lord in the life that they lived they would be on their own now I would love them and accept them but I told them that their mother and I would not subsidize a self-serving or a self-indulgent lifestyle now if our college-age children had begun cutting classes partying, wasting money, or if they moved in with their boyfriend or girlfriend, I would have immediately drawn a line under any financial support. Why do we allow our children to think that we perpetually owe them regardless of how they live? Where do parents get the idea that when their kids turn 18 or 21 and go out on their own that they as parents no longer have any responsibility to influence them for God and for good. Why do parents knock themselves out for young adult children never receiving any appreciation or reciprocal or any relational reciprocation? What values are we reinforcing in them about respecting us as their parents? Listen, as long as they are dependent on you, there should be some accountability to you. So the rest of the story is, Kayleen and I are constantly looking for ways to affirm our adult children and grandchildren, and we try to go out of our way to be helpful. We want to make good on the promise to make their lives pleasant, to help them in every way we can, since they're living lives that honor God and bless others. So, what does that involve? Well, it involves, I've learned, babysitting, lots of babysitting, lots of child care, auto maintenance, helping them with moves, remodeling painting and other miscellaneous items and through the years they've called in some other markers on this pledge to make their life pleasant <laughs> our older daughter and her husband had a three acre yard in Joplin I can tell you that yard ate my lunch in the summertime for two years our son-in-law Brian was on tour with a college ministry team and Carissa was busy with a new baby I got to mow the yard every week so glad that chapter is closed <laughs> then our daughter-in-law Desi called me one time to report that the sewer line had backed up into the bathtub and spilled out onto the bathroom floor at their house and Kyle was out of town that was fun <laughs> then our younger daughter Camille called me to say that their English Mastiff 
had shredded everything in the garage while she and Matt were away from home, and there was nothing left in the garage but refuse knee-deep. And could I go over and clean it up? Not pretty. Now, don't get me wrong. I actually loved doing these ugly jobs. I did. <laughs> because I thought they were golden opportunities to communicate that I was a merciful father from whom all help comes. <laughs> but the reason is, I, went, I want them to associate my fatherhood with the fatherhood of God who gives his help to us. Well, what else do we see here? We, also, we see that God not only gives his help to us, but here, he gives his help through us to others. Paul writes, God helps us in all our troubles so that we're able to help others who have all kinds of troubles. So God not only gives his help to us, he gives his help through us, and we comfort and strengthen others with the comfort and strength we have received from the Lord. And this, this spirit is infused into the life of our church. Our support groups here on Monday night are often led by someone who's experienced God's help and wants to pass it on to others. Our grief share, divorce care, recovery groups, point man and home front ministries, our cancer team populated with people who want to strengthen others with the strength that they have received from the Lord. And it's also true of the spirit of many individuals in our church as well. Brian Comstock is a man who is representative of several in our church who want God to use their life trial to help others. Brian is a husband to Allison, father of Andrew and Meredith, teacher at Evansville Christian School. I think we have their picture here. There they are. That's the Brian Comstock family. Brian has recently been through some dark days battling cancer and it's really not over yet. Brian is in treatment and he is facing additional surgeries. He and Allison have made 16 round trips to Indianapolis in just the last few months. But I want you to know him and I want you to hear his testimony this morning. He's got a deep personal understanding of how God works the night shift. Watch. So Brian, I want to thank you sincerely for coming in today and having a conversation with me about your life. And thank you for opening up this part of your life for the benefit of your church family. It'll be encouraging. Tell, tell me, Brian, about the diagnosis of your cancer. How did that come about? Well. I was diagnosed in April of this year with stage four cancer um, of the jawbone. And uh, it had started out in a salivary gland, I think, and metastasized into the jawbone. And um, my, initial, uh, my initial symptoms were just numbness in my chin. And then eventually I ended up with pain in my uh, side of my head, my ear, my jaw. But it took five months before I was diagnosed. I had blood tests. Nothing revealed this cancer until I went to an oral surgeon 
who did a CT scan and then a biopsy and found it. Brian, when you got that news, tell me how that hit you and Allison and Andrew and Meredith. Well, getting told you have cancer is devastating. Um, stage four cancer, my whole family was devastated. Um, in one, one sense, I felt relief that I had the diagnosis. You know, at least we knew now that what it was and that I could be treated. Um, but knowing that I had to have major surgery and chemo and radiation, um, that was very difficult. That was my family and I took that very hard. We're talking about God works the night shift right now. And uh, Brian, tell me, what were the darkest days of the past few months for you and the family? When I finally had the surgery, what was supposed to be a 10 or 12 hour surgery ended up being 20 hours. Now 20 hour surgery, um, when I woke up from that surgery, I found out it was 20 hours. That was very difficult, especially now I was being told that the surgery was a failure. They ended up using my, they had to use my fibula as a jawbone and they could not connect the blood vessels. And they had to take that whole thing out and start over again. They said they had to wait a week and try my left leg. And that whole week was very dark. You know, lots of doubt, lots of questions, what is gonna happen, you know? To wait that week, knowing that the, the first surgery was not successful. And so that second surgery, we are praying that that would, would work, and it did. Tell me how you experienced God's help in that time. Yeah, well, you know, I had uh, a lot of dark days, you know, from the, the, the surgery to uh, my legs having uh, infections to my feeding tube, uh, becoming dislodged a couple times. Every time I had something that I was going through, I made certain that I told as many people as I could what I was going through. I did that through Caring Bridge, a Caring Bridge website. And every time I had people praying, he brought me through that. And at the time you're going through it, you don't necessarily see the outcome. But um, every time the outcome happened, it was always positive. How do you envision, Brian, that having gone through this yourself, having experienced God's help, uh, how do you envision that God could use you to help someone else down the way? Well, I think I already have in some ways. And whenever I see people today, I say, and they say, what happened to you? And I tell them my story. I give God the glory and I say, this is what I've been through. And I couldn't have done this without God. And in the future, when I see people, I tell them what I've been through. And I will tell them what has happened. And I, I foresee people getting encouragement through that.
I appreciate Brian's humility and even more his desire to share how God gives his help to us and how God then gives his help through us to others. There's so many helping organizations and ministries that have been launched by people who've experienced God's help and they want to extend that help to others in his name. I was, was reading an article by Charles Colson in which he said he often wondered why he had to go to prison. Legally, there was no reason why he should have been put in prison except the justice system needed a scapegoat or two for the Watergate scandal during the Richard Nixon presidency, so he ended up there. And for a long time, he struggled with why. Why did he have to suffer the humiliation, the shame, the disgrace, the discontent of prison? And then the answer came. While he was in prison, he learned what prisoners go through. He saw what these forgotten men and women sometimes face, the difficulty, even the impossibility of recovering themselves. And there was born in him a deep compassion to and desire to help. So after he was released from prison, he devoted his life to going back into the prisons and helping incarcerated men and women. Now for years, for years, wonderful stories have been coming out of prisons all over America of the dramatic changes in the lives and destinies of inmates, all because of prison fellowship, all because Charles Colson was sent to prison. God gave his help to Charles Colson, and God has given his help through Charles Colson to others. So what about, what about you this morning? How has God given his help to you? If you were to just, in your mind, clear your head, think about the ways that God has given his help to you throughout your life, can you trace his hand of blessing? How then might you let God give his blessing to others through you. We're really talking about serving here. And you know, the, the last thing some believers need is another Bible study. What they need instead is serving experiences to get them off a dead center spiritually, to get them going, to get them growing. Experiences in which they can exercise their faith. But serving is the opposite of our natural inclination. Most of the time, we're more interested in being served. I'm looking for a church that meets my needs and blesses me, where people are attentive to me, instead of, I'm looking for a place to plug in and serve others and bless others. The Spirit of our Lord in Mark 10:45, says it all. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That statement in Scripture is the fundamental, the foundational purpose statement for who Jesus is and why he came. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And because of that, we are saved and we are secure and we are free to serve others in his name. Will you stand with me for prayer? Father, we thank you that this morning we know that you are working the night shift in our lives, those dark days, helping us and preparing us empowering us, motivating us 
to help others in your name. Lord, may we revolutionize our view of the purpose of our faith. We are one to win and we are saved to serve. And we're comforted and strengthened by you so we can extend your comfort and strength and encouragement to others in your name. So give us that purpose, consume us with that purpose. Wherever we live, work, wherever we were planted, help us, Lord, to, to live for your glory by serving others in your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.